starts when the lights start getting low and then in come in the Eskimos. They leave their spears by the tower. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, as always, he is the man who played Hugo Jerry in the HBO original series Deadwood, Stephen Tobolowski. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, uh, David, thank you for the Hugo Jerry mention. I, I remember... Uh, David Milch came up to me, uh, one of the first shows we were going to do on Deadwood. And, you know, I got to say right now, I've gotten a lot of emails about Deadwood. I am putting together a story about Deadwood. But uh, David Milch came up to me and said, what should your name be? Uh, I think I want your last name to be Jerry. What would you like uh, for a first name? And I said, oh, gosh, I mean, never does a writer or producer ask the actor what the name of their character is going to be. So I went, I, I, uh, Tom, <laughs> Willie, <laughs> you know, what's a good Western name? And David goes, how about Hugo? Hugo's good. I said, that's great because Victor Hugo, uh, wrote Les Miserables and we were all very Les Miserables shooting Deadwood. So, you know. Oh no, that's for the that's for the Deadwood story. I have to save that for the Deadwood story. Right. But that's how I got my name, Hugo Jari. That was that was an amazing, amazing experience. And it will be the subject, I promise, of a future story sooner than later. Well speak, oh. speaking of amazing acting experiences, Stephen, I mean you told us last week about uh, the way you got your start in the acting industry. Oh, that's right. That's and- right. Coming out to LA and the AIDS epidemic and uh, trying to find an agent. Right, right. And I'm wondering, you know, were there ever any times in your life where you doubted that you'd actually make it? How about every day of my life? How about today? (laughs) (laughs) Is today a good day to doubt it? I remember um, my parents were always supportive, but enormously doubtful that, that, uh, there would be any success at the end of this rainbow. And I remember mom in particular was very keen on me having what she called backup careers. And uh, the number one backup career, of course, was uh, being a lawyer. I could always be a lawyer. (laughs) And then I would remind her that I would have to go to law school first as, you know, you can't just drop out of being an actor and then go to being a lawyer unless you do it on TV. And then the other backup profession was being a teacher and I remember as late and almost to the year before mom died which is now like she she passed on about two years ago so like three years ago mom was still saying to me hey maybe you could be a teacher and I was explaining to her mom you know waiters make more money than teachers teachers don't make any money at all I could become a teacher and still be bankrupt and 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 I said, I don't even have the qualifications to be a waiter. I mean, there, <laughs> there's a waiting line of people to be waiters who are actually really, really good at it. Um, I should mention, David, I give a little backstory to this because uh, it made me think about the podcast, that I was, I was always one of those kids whose entire life was supposed to happen in the future. And everything that was happening now was in preparation for that future. In other words, I had to do good in grade school 
to get into the high academic class or the HAG group in high school. I had to do good in high school to get into a good college. I had to do good in college to get a good job. And then when, 19, when I graduated college, that was 1973, I realized I'd finished four years of college and was qualified to do absolutely nothing except maybe give back rubs. I had followed the plan faithfully, but here I was, I was in my mid-twenties and I was already running out of options. And when you aim at something so remote as being a professional actor, and I do think that wanting to be a professional actor is a longer shot than wanting to be a rodeo clown, it's easy to feel the panic of failure early and often. So I tried my hand at a lot of sort of things to try to buy my dream some time. First backup job I remembered, I, I landed a one-day job. I was offered $25 an hour on election day holding up a sign for a man running for the U.S. of House of Representatives. The man's name was Harold Collum. I have no idea who he was or what he stood for. All I knew was that the poster had his name, Harold Collum, in blue and white and a picture of a column. I'm supposing it was symbolic of something, I'm sure probably meant he was strong or supportive or a ruin. I had no idea which. But I started pacing back and forth at my required 1,000 feet from the polling place when an intelligent-looking young man came up to me and said, okay, I give you five minutes. Why should I vote for your guy? My brain whirred like the chamber of a six-shooter with no bullets. All I could think of to do was to act like the politicians I had seen on TV. So I pulled my face together in kind of a smirk, and I nodded my head knowingly, kind of furrowed my brow, and said, well, the rumors of corruption are enough for me to want a clean slate. And the young man said, what corruption? I said, well, you know, the, the financial thing, the misappropriation of funds. You know, I was just grasping at straws. He goes, well, I haven't heard anything. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in the New York Times, I think. And I felt myself breaking out in a flop sweat. I could no longer sustain the ruse, and I broke down, you know, like a little girl. I said, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm so sorry. Don't listen to me. Vote for whoever you want. <laughs> About 15 minutes later, the campaign manager for Harold Cullum came over, took my sign away from me, <laughs> and thus my days as a low-level political operative had ended. After that, I was hired to teach drama at a synagogue down the street. I was in charge of putting together the talent show for the 15 kids I was teaching. And I gave each child some little piece to do. It was all very cute. But then came something that completely blindsided me the attack of the mothers. They ragged me up one side and down the next. Their child was not doing enough. Their child could also sing. Their child did impressions. Look, I was only 19 years old, so rather than being the voice of reason, I just added acts to the show. And the performance expanded from the already uncomfortable 90 minutes to over four hours of unrelenting, seemingly unending performances by untalented children. They did Richard Nixon impressions. They lip-synced to Sonny and Cher songs. They did oral interpretations from the Diary of Anne Frank. They performed every song and comedy routine you used to love. And there were only two positives that came from that evening. One, I left early. And two, the parents had to stay. It was sort of an instant karma moment.
The next week I was fired. That was another instant karma moment. After that, I got a job reading to a blind woman. I read to her two hours a day, three, three times a week. She was in her 80s, and she was one of the richest women in Dallas. We read Nobel Prize-winning authors from Winston Churchill to John Steinbeck. And personally, it was a great experience for me. Until about three months into it, she wanted a change of pace from the Grapes of Wrath and Siddhartha. So she pulled out a rough draft of a book she was writing. It was an autobiography of sorts. There are not enough X's in the Hollywood rating system to do this book justice. It was filled with so much graphic sex and violence, it could have been written by Sam Peckinpah's evil twin. The whippings, the electrocutions, the group sex, and that was just in the first 10 pages. The book, as I shall refer to it, was over 180 pages long. I just kept plugging away at it, so to speak. She sat there demurely and then would ask me what I thought of it. I would say, pretty scary, pretty scary stuff. And it was. On the bright side, it did make me see God's point of view as to why he wanted to destroy mankind. I felt none of these jobs were moving me closer to any sort of a real goal except alcoholism. I needed to focus on acting jobs. That's what I wanted to do, and I should hold out as long as I could till I got my shot. And believe it or not, I did not have to wait long. I was offered a job. It was an acting job, sort of, and it wasn't to be in a play or to be in a commercial. It was to be a member of a sketch comedy group and perform at the Hyatt House in Dallas. It all sounded really good until we were told we were going to be paid in food. It's always tough when an employer offers to pay you in food or beer because you always feel like you have to be a glutton to get your money's worth. They brought in Chinese food at the beginning of rehearsal, and I would eat two heaping plates of whatever was in the cartons. I had no idea. And this is one of the definitional problems with Chinese food. There, there is a certain lack of clarity about what it is you're eating. Many years later, many, many years later, when I was in a rock band in L.A., our whole band went out to eat dim sum after the show, and the waiter offered me shushafee, which sounded good to me. Timmy, our guitarist, asked me what I was getting, and I told him shushafee. He asked me what the hell that was. I shrugged. The waiter came to the table and offered me a plate of foie shushafee, which turned out to be fried chicken feet. But at least then, it was only a meal and not my salary. We worked on a series of skits in this comedy troupe written by our director, Don, and his wife, Judith, that included a bit about a board meeting with advertising icons being real people. For example, the Marlboro Man shows up and puts the moves on Virginia Slim. And we had another skit with a hilarious bit of fluff on how a rich man goes to the bathroom. Well, when we moved the show to the Hyatt House... I witnessed something incredible. And now because of the fast turnaround in scenes, uh, all of the actors would have to do what they call underdress. And for those of you who are not in the know, who are not actors, this was a kind of stage magic trick where you wear the costume for a future scene underneath the costume you're currently wearing. That way, in a fast change, you just strip off the outer garments and you have your next costume already on. It's fabulous. 
In theory, it works great as long as you aren't wearing anything unusual. One of our actors was Jack Rose, a former linebacker for the Chicago Bears. He played all of our businessmen and presidents and rich men going to the bathroom. In this one skit, he was playing the president of a company right before he had to play the Marlboro Man, so they wanted him to underdress. Underneath his blue wool business suit and wool turtleneck, he wore blue jeans with real leather chaps, a blue cowboy shirt, a leather vest with fringe, and a bandana. First night in front of the audience was the first night we had all of our costume pieces. He looked like a slice of beef wellington. Being a former athlete, he was already a big man anyway, and all the cowboy clothes underneath the business clothes made him appear to be a contestant on The Biggest Loser. Under the weight of those eight layers of clothing, Jack began to sweat during the boardroom skit. First his forehead, then his face. But within five minutes, he was looking like Charles Barkley in the fourth quarter at the free throw line. I mean, the sweat was pouring off of his nose. I could tell it was starting to affect his mind. His eyes were rolling around in his head, and then they would dart around the room. Sweat was puddling on the table in front of him, and suddenly he snapped. He roared as he stood up from the table and yelled, I can't take it anymore, and he started ripping off his clothes. The audience had no idea what was happening. They gasped when he fumbled for his belt buckle and started to unzip his pants. They were confused when he pulled down his pants, revealing yet another pair of pants with full leather chaps. He started undoing his cowboy pants. Now the audience thought it was so horrible it had to be part of our show. (laughs) They laughed. Jack yelled at him, I'm dying up here. They laughed harder. He pulled his cowboy pants down, revealing his boxers. He kicked his legs furiously to get the cowboy pants off, but they were tucked into his boots. So he started raging around the stage, throwing off his shirt, throwing off his vest. He yelled, go ahead, go ahead and laugh. In case you haven't noticed, I'm a big man. I happen to sweat a lot. The audience roared. I was standing on the side of the stage now with my jaw touching the ground. He ended up bare-chested in boxers, still moving around the stage, wearing the leather chaps with his cowboy pants caught in his cowboy boots, dragging around his ankles. He shuffled around the stage, furiously looking for an exit. The performance of our little nightclub act ended here. There is no coming back from this as a performer. We all counted ourselves lucky that Jack didn't hurt anyone. The only thing that could have stopped him at that point was a tranquilizer dart. And that was also the end of our free Chinese food. Looking back, I have to say I sympathize with Jack. I also felt like the fit was too tight and I was dying. Shortly after the failed nightclub act, I decided to pick up my many different costumes I had scattered around the ground and leave my hometown. I didn't know where... Or what awaited me, but I knew in Dallas I had done all I could do to define the bottom. And that's always a good place to start. But it's all in the show, yeah. Everybody knows that it's on with the show at the pros and the It's all It's a 
As I had mentioned, my first apartment in Los Angeles was a single room with a Murphy bed that pulled out of the wall. I liked the place a lot. It was in Los Angeles, it was furnished, and it was cheap. It was $165 a month, if you could believe that. And cheaper was better in that I didn't have a job or any prospect for jobs, and I needed my meager savings to last. I would have stayed in this place a lot longer if my room was not invaded by a gigantic swarm of ants about a yard wide marching steadily under the permanently painted open crack of my kitchen window. I talked to my landlady. She said she would talk to the bug man. Los Angeles has lots of people that handle vermin that are only known by the phrase man. There's bug man, rat man, mold man, kind of like low-level superheroes. She reported back that the bug man told her he had just sprayed in the area and probably caused some displacement of the colony into my apartment. The next day, mysteriously, the ants were gone. The next morning, they had returned millions of them. I figured they just went back to pack. Apparently, they told their friends they found a cheap place with a pool. Some of them even made it to my bed. I started feeling like Charlton Heston in the naked jungle. I could only imagine the phone call the landlady would have to make to my mom and dad that they broke into my apartment, found a skeleton holding a beer in front of a TV set. They were awaiting the results of the test, but they feared the worst. I had to move immediately. I found another apartment about three blocks away. It was bigger. It was more expensive, $220 a month, and it was unfurnished. But I was desperate. I could sleep on the floor. I took it. I looked at ads in the neighborhood newspapers, and I bought a kitchen table and chairs for $10, a sofa for $25, and suddenly within two hours, hey, I was furnished. I went to the store. I bought cereal, milk, bologna, bread, mustard and pickles, paper towels, toilet paper, and an apple pie. The larder was now full. I was feeling empowered. That night, I watched the late night movie on my sofa eating pie. I felt like a hero in Greek mythology, having slayed my first monster. It was almost midnight. I looked out of my living room window and imagined myself lord of all I surveyed. That's when I found out my new apartment came with a naked man. About a hundred feet away across the street in another apartment building. Now, I didn't see all of the naked man, just enough to know he was naked and a man. His kitchen was directly across from my living room, and it was always dark in his apartment, but whenever he opened his refrigerator, the light came on, illuminating him from nipples to knees. It wasn't as risque as it sounds. It was more like a National Geographic, Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom moment. Over the next few weeks, he became a permanent feature of the little movie I called What I See Out My Window at Night. The light would come on across the way. There was Naked Man. I tried to think of names for him, but nothing suited him better than Naked Man. My friends would come over and ask if Naked Man had been in the kitchen yet. We would often sit around pretending to watch the late movie, waiting for Naked Man to open the fridge and grab some more yogurt. For weeks, all I knew about Naked Man was that he snacked at night. Then one morning at dawn, I heard Naked Man having sex in his apartment. Yes, 
It was unmistakable. I heard him. I heard her. Then in the middle of the sexual huffing and puffing and her yelling, yes, yes, more, more, I heard a dog barking in their bedroom. It sounded like a lab. The naked man yelled, get out of here. Go away. Get. The dog continued barking. Naked man yelled, shut up. Shut up. Bad dog. Bad dog. The woman was very polite. She continued to groan throughout it all. But the dog continued to bark. And suddenly the woman yelled, shut up. Shut up. Get him out of here. And they say romance is dead. In a Zen way, I think the dog brought the two of them closer together. And I was beginning to learn Los Angeles made you look at life in a Zen way almost on a daily basis. The pressure of the higher rent was working on my mind. It even robbed me of the pleasure of enjoying the life and times of Naked Man. On television, they had a segment on 60 Minutes called The Price of Nothing. And this is the index of how much it costs just to breathe in a certain city and use nothing. For example, if you got an apartment and turned on the utilities but never used them, you would still have to pay the price of nothing. And in Los Angeles, nothing costs more than in almost any city in the United States. It brought home to roost that my dream of being an actor was on a very short leash. Then, as if in answer to a prayer, I was reading one of the actor newsletters, and there was an audition for an equity job. And what you people out there, what, what it means if, if you're not in show business, equity job means a real job. It means a paying job. It was for a children's theater group called Twelfth Night Repertory Company. And I thought, great. I had just worked with children in Dallas. I liked the play Twelfth Night. Let's do it. Now, the requirements for being in the company were actually very high. You had to play two musical instruments, which I did. I played piano and guitar. For a brief period of time in high school and college, I played in a group with Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yes, it's true. He was 14 years old at the time and a genius, and I was talentless. But hey, it's on the resume. Twelfth Night listed that you had to be an expert at improvisation. Hey, I just furnished my apartment for $35 in two hours. It doesn't get any better than that. And finally, you had to speak a foreign language. I took German for two years in high school because Claire Richards, a girl I had a crush on since she went trick-or-treating with me in sixth grade, was also taking German. I had even committed two German phrases to memory. Man kann ihn immer an seine Stimme erkennen, ich muss mir eine neue Jacke kaufen. Which means, one can hear the noise all the way to the street and I must buy a new jacket. I learned these phrases not because I ever thought I would need them in a real-world situation, but because if you were to say them together really fast, it sounds like you could speak German, which is exactly what I would need to do for the people at the Twelfth Night Repertory Company. The auditions were being held in an address in the San Fernando Valley. They told me to come prepared to play instruments, sing, dance, and improvise. Wow. Driving through a residential area, I quickly realized that the audition was going to take place in someone's home, more specifically in someone's garage. Walking up to the garage, I had a certain clarity. Clarity is nice. I wanted this job more than anything I had ever wanted in my entire life. A youngish man and woman sat at the table in the driveway. They looked at my resume. He raised his eyebrows and said, so uh, you speak German? And I went, 
hm, man kann ihn immer an seine Stimme erkennen. Ich muss mir eine neue Jacke kaufen. He smiled and nodded. Good, good. She asked, at what level do you play guitar and piano? I said, well, on the piano I play some beginning Beethoven and Mozart, mainly classical. I do a little rock and roll. Guitar, just rock and roll chords. I was a backup guitarist in a, in a group in high school. The man asked me, do you play jazz? I said, no, no, not really, but I can learn. He smiled at that answer. And for all of my young listeners out there, never underestimate the power of your willingness to learn. They called out about eight other people from the house who had come to audition. The man and the woman told us to get at one end of the garage, and we all lined up. And she said, I want to see how you move. You are going to go from one end of the garage to the other, but I'm going to tell you how. First, your cats. Now, I had a pet cat my whole life, so this was a piece of cake. I even stopped halfway across the garage to cough up a furball. This went over big. We kept walking back and forth, and they kept switching gears. Now you're five-year-olds. Now you're walking through peanut butter. Now you're on Jupiter. See, in college, I was in an improv group where we did things like this all the time. We walked through peanut butter. We walked like we were five years old. Now, we never walked like we were on Jupiter, but in college, we did walk as if we were on the bottom of the ocean. And I figured that was a lot like walking on Jupiter. We went inside of the house to the piano where they asked me to play. So I started with a little Moonlight Sonata, then shifted to the beginning of Grieg's Piano Concerto in A minor, then shifted to a French Chopin-like waltz. Now, I could actually do this, so I lingered on it to make sure there was no doubt. They laughed and nodded. They explained to all of us that there were only two positions available, and that if we didn't get it, this time not to fret because there may be other opportunities opening up in a few months. A few months? No way. I was going to get one of the two slots. I knew it. Between the piano and coughing up the fur ball, I had sealed the deal. I went home confidently uncertain about my future with Twelfth Night Repertory Company. Two days later, I got the call. I recognized the woman's voice. She told me I did great on the audition, but I didn't get the job. I think I may have had a small stroke at that moment. I lost the power of speech. I just hummed and grunted that I understood, and I was happy to have had the chance to audition. I think my part of the conversation went something like this. Mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm, mm, oh, oh, mm, mm. She continued that everyone was impressed by what I did. And if things opened up down the line, she would give me a call. I hung up the phone and stared into space. The evening sun started to set. I couldn't even get up to turn on a light. I went to take a shower to wash off the stench of failure. I came out drying myself, walked over to the living room, turned on the set, the Channel 2 news burst forth, and I was bathed in the light of the TV. And suddenly, in a moment, I had an eerie feeling on the back of my neck like I was being watched. I whirled around, I looked out the window, and I saw a naked man standing by his open fridge looking toward my apartment. In an instant, distracted by despair, I had become naked man's naked man. <sighs> Another zen moment in L.A., I dove onto the couch. I was afraid to get up for what seemed like hours. 
I had failed. And this was my best shot at a real job. I, I tried to mix things up the next day to help me forget. I ate bologna for breakfast. I had cereal for lunch. I watched cartoons on PBS when the phone rang. It was the woman from Twelfth Night again. She said, Stephen, I told you I would call you back, and I didn't think it would be this soon. But I wanted to see if this interested you. As you know, we filled up all the spots on our English-speaking cast, but we are thinking of starting an all-Spanish-speaking company, doing Mexican folktales in the schools. You would play the piano and guitar and play some parts in the show. Do you think you could do that? I know you said your second language was German. I go, well, yeah, yeah. You know, I took German in school, but I grew up hearing Spanish my whole life. Hey, I'm from Texas. We ate at El Phoenix all the time. And, and by the way, I always wanted to learn Spanish. I could do this. Uh, I could learn the show phonetically and take Spanish at the same time. She goes, really? I go, absolutely. It would, it would be just like learning Shakespeare. And, and this is a job where you get paid, right? She went, yes, yes. You start out at $216 a week with the ability to make more depending on the number of shows you do. I go, I'll do it. I'll take it. When does it start? She said, right away. You have four weeks before your first show. Tell me, Stephen, do you want to think about it and call me in the morning? I go, nope, 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 not at all. Nothing to think about. This is exactly the kind of thing I do. I just finished a job in Texas teaching children. I loved it. Uh, I love to play music. Sign me up. She said, well, I appreciate the enthusiasm. The job is yours. I said, thank you. Thank you you. I hung up the phone and almost passed out from joy. I had done it. I got a job in acting that paid money. Yes, it wasn't a foreign language, but that would just be part of the challenge. I called mom and dad right away with the good news. Mom was pleased, but then said, well, honey, how long do you have to learn Spanish? I said, a couple weeks. She said, well, can you do that? I said, well, the Swedish rock group Shocking Blue learned English phonetically and had a huge hit with Venus. It can be done. And I'm sure the language element will be very simple. It's for children. She goes, well, all right. I could now pay my rent. I could buy things for the apartment. I could buy a cup to hold my toothbrush in, deli sandwiches, more pie, a color TV. I was on the verge of becoming a consumer. I headed out to the local library. I was going to start learning Spanish. The first book I saw was one of those Berlitz language books. It said, learn Spanish in 90 days. Nope, that wasn't going to cut it. Another book said, Spanish in a month. Hmm, I was thinking, well, at least we're moving in the right direction. I kept scanning at book titles until I got to learn Spanish in one hour. Bingo. The mother load. This was exactly what I needed. I would walk into rehearsal the next day with the language already learned. For all of you young listeners out there, here is a second lesson. Never overestimate your ability to learn. This book was not a real template for learning a foreign language. There was no grammar. There were no verbs. There were very few nouns. It was primarily a book of words that are the same in Spanish and English, like federal, national, cafeteria, taco. 
I would have to learn this play by rote. But we had time. We were disciplined. We were working on this rehearsal for several hours a day, three weeks straight, and it was all coming together without a hitch. I was filled with confidence. I played a bad guy in a sombrero and a mustache, obviously before racial profiling got a bad name. I played guitar and shook maracas when needed. I used hand puppets with comic effects singing songs. And then I would run over to the piano and start playing a cha-cha. The kids would love it. It was the day of our first school performance. Two shows in Indio, California. The first show was a snap. Not a single mistake. We were high-fiving each other backstage, and they moved out the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders out of the auditorium, moved in the first, second, and third graders. I put my sombrero back on. I rushed out to play a little dramatic rumba music. The kids were booing me. I was making faces at them like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And they laughed, and everybody was having a good time, and the play started. The heroine of the piece was played by our boss, a Peruvian actress named Jenny Gago. She was dressed up like a little girl, and she was lost and about to be kidnapped by bandits. Me. In the play, I bow to her, and with a wink to the audience, I say, Pasa jovencita, which means, come in, little girl. And all the kids would yell at her not to come in with me. It was great. Whether it was the adrenaline or the exhaustion, I can't say. But when the little girl came up to me, I winked to the audience, and my mind went blank. I tried to remember my Spanish, but it was swirling in my head like alphabet soup. So instead of saying, pasa jovencita, which means come in, little girl, I said, peto jovencita, which means fart, little girl. The audience erupted in, ooh, ooh. The teachers were running back and forth to quell the chaos. Jenny Gago looked at me in horror. I still had absolutely no idea I'd said anything wrong. I just stood there grinning with my big sombrero, <laughs> twirling my mustache. The play continued. At the next juncture, I was supposed to say, No tienes preguntas, which means, Do you have any questions? Again, the mind went blank. I muttered a combination of Spanish-sounding words that almost sounded like that, and the audience erupted in shouts and cries. Teachers were running back and forth. Instead of asking if she had any questions, apparently I had told her to sit on it and squeeze. The principal of the school ran over to confer with the vice principal. I looked at Jenny Gago, who was staring daggers at me. I asked her, hey, what's wrong? She just whispered, you're fired. This was the only time I had ever heard of someone being fired on stage during a play. Afterward, she asked me why I did it. I told her I still had no idea what I did. Well, that was the end of me performing in Spanish with Twelfth Night Repertory Company. It was the end of my job. But there are a couple interesting bits of irony, and we actors, we love irony. There was a man at the performance in Indio who was a TV producer for SIN, the Spanish language network. And he asked me if I could do a commercial for him in Spanish, which I did. I made $500 for the day playing the dumb gringo who can't speak Spanish. The commercial was so successful, he hired me to do two more in Spanish. And I was not done with Twelfth Night Repertory Theater either. 
they called me up a month later and asked me if I wanted a job in the English-speaking company, that they would let bygones be bygones. I accepted. Jenny Gago would still be my boss. She forgave me, and we had the best time for three years performing all over the state of California. In fact, the governor at the time, Jerry Brown, came to see us perform, and he declared us the official theater company of California. It grew from a mere four people to many, many casts, including 88 people. And some of the alumni of the 12th Night Repertory Theater were the amazing Mayor Winningham of TV and movies and Broadway star Brian Stokes Mitchell. You know, it still amuses me to think of Brian Stokes Mitchell acting with a sock puppet. It wasn't long after I got the job in the English-speaking company that I decided to move again. I bid farewell to the naked man and left the apartment and the used furniture behind. I rented a house, two bedrooms, a kitchen, a swing on the front porch, a backyard. I had a place to show my girlfriend when she moved out to be with me. I was a working actor. I was making $260 a week. I was a consumer at last, a success. But I had the strangest feeling I couldn't shake. I didn't know where it came from, and I didn't know where it was leading me. But it was whispering in my ear to be careful, because the price of nothing was getting higher every day. That was The Price of Nothing, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, looking back on that time, I was wondering, as I was listening to your story, uh, do you have any sort of regrets? Do you have any regrets about sort of the way you, you might have approached things back then? No, no, you know, uh, I don't. I, I don't. I think one of the most powerful tools I had, and I think any young actor has to have to survive, is they have to say yes to experiences that maybe they're not so comfortable in. Uh, I realize now, looking back at last week's podcast, the middle chapters and this one, which is all about at the same time period, I had a very strong drive to say yes to jumping into deep water. And eventually I came away with a lot of good positive feelings from it. I want to mention something about Twelfth Night Repertory Company. You know, as big as big a disaster as that first Spanish show was, we made an enormous difference in the lives of some kids. And, and I remember one story. Uh, I, w- I was being interviewed not long ago about what were some of the most important roles you had ever played. And I guess they expect me to say Groundhog's Day or Memento or Hugo Jari in Deadwood. And I said, one of the most important roles I ever played was in Twelfth Night Repertory Company. I remember we used to do the show called Meal which means multi-ethnic American leaders, kind of like a disease, a bad disease. We had just initials. Uh, 
we went into a school outside the San Francisco area where three students had been killed in race riots. And we had to enter the school under a police escort. We got up on stage and we started performing our show and the audience was screaming at us. There were cat calls. People were throwing things at us. But we continued. We persevered and we did the show. Our show was only about 40 minutes long. About halfway through the show, the audience kind of quieted down. And when we got to the end of the show, Rick Fitz, who, sang, who had a beautiful voice, uh, sang the final song about Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable, the black man who discovered Chicago, who was the founder of Chicago. He sang this song and it was so beautiful and it shut that audience up. And at the end of our 40 minutes, we had a standing ovation that went on and on and on. And afterwards, we got a letter from the principal that the race riots at the school ended. And I count myself lucky as an actor. A lot of times, most actors don't have anything tangible like that to rate the worth of their career. They go like, well, I was in you know, Aquaman 3 and we made $1.7 million. That was a huge success. But you can't really point to anything tangible in the world that you, you made things a little better. And with Twelfth Night Repertory Company and to Rick and to Jenny and to Doug and to Deb and to Steffi <laughs> and to Scott, to everybody out there, uh, you know, we made a difference. A testament to the power of children's theater and, of course, theater <laughs> in general. Yes. But, uh, Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can reach you if they would like to write to you this week? Oh, I'll tell you, yes. I would, I would love if you have any ideas for shows or your feedback from other podcasts we've done. I, I've really gotten a lot out of reading your feedback and gave me some great ideas for future shows. Uh, you can write me at Stephen Tobolowsky at gmail.com and I'll spell it for you S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-O B as in boy O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com And uh, you can also follow Stephen on Twitter if I'm not mistaken, right? You're at uh, Twitter.com That is correct. Yes. I am at Twitter now and uh, I am having a lot of fun uh, doing a lot of silly jokes on Twitter. It's a lot of fun talking to everybody. So you can follow Stephen on Twitter.com slash Tobolowski. And uh, I want to give a couple of shout outs as well. Uh, first of all, if you'd like to hear more of my work, you can check me out at slashfilmcast.com. And uh, I host the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of slashfilm.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. And you can find every single episode of the Tobolowski Files and find links to subscribe at tobolowskifiles.com. Lastly, we want to give a shout out to Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party, the DVD and movie that inspired it all. Stephen, can you talk a little <laughs> bit about this? Yeah, uh, STBP movie. A friend of mine and I did a movie where I tell stories to the camera. Uh, we shot it in four days, and uh, it has been all over the world. It is. We, we opened the Bologna Italy Film Festival, been to Buenos Aires, been to London, been to San Francisco, uh, been to Lubbock, Texas. Uh, but now it's on DVD. You can get it, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party at Amazon.com. 
at stbpmovie.com. That stands for Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party Movie.com. Or you could rent it at Netflix. Great. Uh, and as I've always said, if you like this Tobolowsky Files, you're probably going to like uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party. So that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of the Tobolowski Files. Thanks, guys, so much for listening. And uh, please subscribe. Oh, one, one other thing I want to say. Please subscribe to the show uh, at TobolowskiFiles.com. And if you like it, uh, or even if you don't like it, leave a review at iTunes for us. We'd really appreciate that and uh, get your feedback that way as well. All right, guys, uh, we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.